This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In the upcoming book, The Contenders, a provocative and unflinching look at the Democratic presidential candidates who will win, lose, jockey for power, and call the shots from the sidelines, our guest today, co-author Richard Goldstein, offers an unusual perspective on Barack Obama, contrasting Obama's soft brand of masculinity with a machismo that dominated contemporary politics and popular culture just a few years ago. Goldstein writes regularly for The Nation. He's also the author of Homo Cons, The Rise of the Gay Right. Richard Goldstein, welcome to Weekly Signals. Good to speak to you. How are you doing today? Pretty good. Pretty what's, good. what's it like there? You're in New York? <clears throat> I'm in New York. Yeah. It's a beautiful day, which always makes me a little nervous since <laughs> I live about Uh-oh. a mile from uh, ground zero, as wow. it's now called. Yeah. But otherwise, it's fine. Very good. <laughs> and the weather's always good where you are, right? So. Oh, yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> We're hope- well, actually, we had some, some rain over the weekend. It actually got yeah. exciting here. There was lightning and thunder and rain, and then oh it gets... Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh my, yeah. Well, I, I like that kind of stuff. We, we call it weather, I hear. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, uh, what can I tell you? I have a place in Vermont, and, and oh, really? it isn't a day when it doesn't rain. I mean, it's not a full day. You know what I mean? Something feels uh-huh. missing if it doesn't rain <laughs> or well, snow. That's so. a good thing. So... So tell us about uh, Barack Obama. What what would set him apart? What was the one thing you'd say would set him apart from all the other Democratic contenders right now? Uh, I think what sets Obama apart is the narrative that he surrounds himself with. Mm-hmm. And I don't use that word uh, to indicate uh, something false and artificial. It's not as simple as that. It's the way he plugs into certain myths in, in American life and, and myths that are very deeply embedded in American culture. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that his race then becomes central to his standing, uh, certainly among white people and maybe among, among all people, uh, because myths that surround race at this point in history, whether they are ostensibly positive or negative myths, um, make him seem uh, like the bearer of some kind of magic. Mm-hmm. And that feeling that I think a lot of, certainly a lot of white people have, I, I don't know whether black people would say that they think of him as magic. I, I suspect it, it would be less intense, but, mm-hmm. um, and that there would be a more pragmatic you know, take on him. But, but among white people, uh, you know, that is sort of the image of the person who will uh, help us to transcend uh, the racism that we know exists within us, and thereby will redeem the nation and set it on a new and, and fully energized course by shattering the deeply repressive and deeply corrupt and deeply sinful paradigms of racism that are just uh, part of our consciousness in this country. Now, now in, in the chapter, uh, you do quote these figures that 30... 30- 7% of Americans in 1958 said they were willing to vote for a black candidate. That's 37. Uh, these days, 92% say they are. Right. Uh, how does, 
how does that play into the mythology? Are, are, we, are we saying that America has changed in the last 50 years dramatically, that dramatically, or is this just an answer that people give? No, there's no, there's been a change. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there, there certainly has been a change. I mean, the, the stigma of racism remains. Uh, it is finally what white people notice first or second about a black person that they don't know very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and but attached to that to that sort of racial identification um, is uh, are, are are a number of heroic traits right now. The traits that weren't present in classic racism, um, so that the racism that remains can't necessarily be called bigotry, but it's racism in the sense that it distinguishes a person by his race or her race. And the uh, what's come up now w- with the rise in status and prestige of black people um, in this country, uh, and and with the critique of racism that we've all sort of ingested now. Is uh, is 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 the idea of this sort of black hero, um, and you see this uh, over and over again in the movies. You know, black people are not necessarily the first ones to die in a movie. Now, mm-hmm. um, they they are they are buddies. They're not sidekicks anymore. They're buddies. Mm-hmm. They officiate over the manhood of a white protagonist, uh, and you see this over and over again. You know, you see this in the Die Hard movies. You see it in Training Day. You see it in Independence Day, right. where Will Smith teaches uh, Harry Connick Jr. to smoke a cigar. Ha <laughs> ha. Uh, and, uh, and and you know this this kind of officiation, this kind of priestly function uh, in regard to masculinity, the sort of holder of the keys, is uh, something that is that is you know kind of the flip side of the idea of of white males as the predatory beast, which is what you see in in you know hardcore racist cinema like birth of a nation right where you know an innocent uh, blonde southern woman is kidnapped by a rapine black man and has to be rescued and he chases her around a four poster bed with giant mahogany legs sticking up you know a four poster bed with big black legs um pillars you know columns right and and so what what's, that's been replaced by is is the kind of flip side of that, which is a, a heroic, protecting golem-like figure, with a very deep voice, a very constant temperament, a very sort of muscled body, uh, and and where you have uh, uh, you know evil or badness, the the, the black uh, hero is still uh, remarkable and uh, and gripping, as it is in hip hop. With gangster rap and and with the sort of whole thug persona, which is a, a a turn on the classic notion of the black male beast, but still relates to it. Right. Especially when the consumers of this culture are substantially are are, are white young men. We we had uh, uh, Stuart Ewan on last week, and he he's written a book on typecasting and stereotyping, essentially a lot of how how cultures racially and otherwise stereotype people and it does seem to me that there's sort of a progression there is the the monster stereotype and then there's uh, it, over time it becomes uh something that uh is mitigated by um you know, continued exposure and just mm. education and all the rest of it and right. is is Bar- that's what i think what you're saying is barack is 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 someone who is benefiting from a long yeah cultural yeah. kind of journey uh, yeah. away from all of that into something. Yeah, well, something. he's the emblem of it. But, I, yeah. but I, you know, it needs to be pointed out because it's very relevant here that uh, these images, you know, the allure 
that the stigmatized individual has, the hypersexual quality, all stigmatized groups see this, that there's a hypersexuality associated with them, a kind of sexual erotic magic. Um, so one speaks of the Jewess, um, mm-hmm. or with special sort of spiritual powers, as in the blind singer. One can go on and on about stigmatized groups and, and their magic. The homosexual's magic at making your hair look great or decorating your apartment and making you over for a hug. Uh, all of these things are, are part of the same process, which is that stigma has a double edge. Yeah. And one of them is heroic. And, and, but, and, and there's always been heroic black figures, as in Uncle Tom. Right. Um, but but, but the, now this has become the predominant image, and it is, you know, to a great extent, a positive image. But it still, it, still suge- it still reveals that the group is stigmatized. So for all that Barack Obama stands for transcendence of racism, ra- his campaign is freighted by his race right. and is determined by it to but, a great extent. And that's not entirely of his doing, and it's not entirely, he's not entirely innocent of manipulating that. Mm-hmm. But, but he has been able to, in many ways, sort of harness in, uh, this this mythology in yeah. a way to his benefit let's talk a little bit about how he's been able to well, i'm just i'm just curious uh, about uh cornell west you you mentioned oh, yeah. mentioned cornell and how right. uh, how he reacted to obama can you tell right. a little bit about that story well, i don't really know what happened between them i uh-huh. mean he started out by being critical uh of obama for distancing himself from the african-american community and and, and, and doing that in order to cross over and gain points with whites. Uh, then he, he received a phone call from Obama, and I don't know what went on in that phone call. It's, it hasn't, the content hasn't been reported. But at the end of the phone call, he agreed to volunteer as an unpaid consultant. Uh, and by the time the, you know, he saw Obama in the debate at Howard University, the camera caught him pumping his, his fist in the air <laughs> and shouting Obama's name. And, you know, that kind of, like, workout that you know, progressives like to do, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and, and it's fine, you know, I mean, yeah. uh, you yeah. know, it's, 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 it's an important gesture, you know, uh, uh, and, and uh, I think uh, of all black intellectuals, Cornell West has the most affiliation with popular culture, mm-hmm. and perhaps he is aware of, of, of the ways in which Obama intersects and resonates with these myths. They're myths because they aren't true, that is, you cannot really expect a black man to redeem America. I mean, it's essentially a racist sentiment. But on the other hand, just because they aren't true doesn't mean they aren't real. And the reality of the myth, that is to say it exists as a myth, uh, uh, does contain within it possibly a real potential to change the country. So by intersecting with these myths, I think Obama uh, at least presents the, the possibility that some of the magic associated with these myths really would come to pass in the politics of the nation, were he to be elected or nominated. Uh, and, and that um, certain uh, uh, tendencies in American life that are experimental, explorative, uh, and, and, and have been largely repressed by the war of terror and its manipulation by the government both, uh, that those tendencies would, 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 would burst forth in American politics, and that the country would rediscover its kind of heroic aspect uh, by engaging with this myth. In other words, by 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 uh, by, by, sh- by shattering the the repressions of racism, all sorts of other liberating impulses would be unleashed. And I think this occurred during the Kennedy administration. 
when um, uh, uh, John F. Kennedy, a member of another stigmatized group, Irish, the Irish Catholics, who were initially, you know, weren't, weren't regarded as white and were portrayed as monkeys very frequently in cartoons of them when they first arrived, that, that, uh, that he too unleashed the myth of stigma and that the changes that came about during his administration and its aftermath were much more significant than his own politics were. And they did change America in the long run. He didn't change America, but the myth did. Yeah. So I, you know, that's for me. That's the potential of Obama. It's a complicated thesis, and I don't yeah, want right. to be gulled into thinking that he would, uh, you know, he would be a savior of any sort. But he may unleash certain impulses within the national consciousness that could be important. We're speaking with Richard Goldstein, co-author of the book The Contenders, about his essay, The Redeemer, Barack Obama. Now. Um, Leaving the mythology of, aside, what kind of leader would Barack Obama be? Would, would he be uh, more of a, would he do something dramatic at the first step, do you think? Mm. Of, well, it's hard to say. I mean, you know, uh, you know, his, uh, he, you know his model is, is John F. Kennedy. That's the model he presents of himself. And uh, that is, he's not a president who, who, who uh, undertook important domestic changes. Uh, they were kind of pushed on him by the civil rights movement, and he responded very cautiously, uh, but uh, again, in this unleashing way. Uh, and uh, and uh, Obama's own career, uh, his record, uh, indicates that he would proceed with tremendous caution on all of these fronts, and that he would not abandon any essential element in American foreign policy, but rather would attempt to moderate it somewhat. Um, using and, and would bring into power this whole sort of Kennedy School of Government, uh, Clinton White House group of advisors. Sort of the best and the brightest in, in, in a way. Of right? today, yeah. yeah. Of today, yeah. And, and maybe people like Colin Powell as well, if mm-hmm. possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there wouldn't be... So he's a centrist. Finally, in the end, he's a centrist. He's a centrist Democrat. That's what he is. And uh, when you vote for him, you know, that's what you're getting. You're getting a centrist Democrat. Very much... You know, with with nuances of difference, uh, not a different breed than uh, Hillary Clinton is. Right. It, but, it, go ahead. But go again, ahead. you know, there there is the question of what of what uh, what clings to him in a in a in a representational sense, in it, an iconic sense. Right. And it is it is very interesting, and I and I agree with the the uh, the John Kennedy analogy in that Kennedy himself, for you know, sort of the, it, looking back, we we tend to want to make him a much more liberal progressive president than he really was but he spoke of the missile gap and really was a kind of a, a status quo establishment politician but as you said he sort of embodied the sort of unleashing of this new wave of american um i would say culture i don't know if that's the right way to put it well i, I would say that it was an insurrectionary period that yeah. followed his assassination right Right. And and that uh, as a result of this insurrection, uh, with the, while it didn't succeed, uh, and it certainly its economic agenda didn't succeed, right. uh, its cultural agenda uh, did, to well, a great extent, change America. And that includes attitudes toward race and gender and sexuality and right. uh, desire in general. Um, so well, the, the, yeah. those are important changes. I mean, they, they you know, I, when I teach in college, I'm looking at it, the faces of people who uh, uh, were, are the products of that world, and they are better off. I mean, they really are better off. Right. They, just, they just do not have the traumas 
that we did, um, that I did, and uh, you know, so so there have been enormous changes that that proceeded from John F. Kennedy, but not through his actions. Right, and and I get my point in bringing Kennedy into this is that many of the people that I know and have talked to about Obama are of the opinion that he's more progressive and liberal than he actually is. Right. And that, and I think that's what you're, you're, we're talking about is sort of tapping into that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, when you when you examine his record, it, it's quite clear that he's not a progressive. Right. Uh, he is a liberal. Uh, he's not a progressive, and there really are differences, as everybody knows. Right, right. Um, but again, when you examine the totality of his uh, of his aura, if you want to call it that, in the critical sense, his uh, his iconography, you know, yeah, um, and you see something that is potentially quite progressive and 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 even maybe radical mm-hmm. so he's the person who evokes change without promising it <laughs> he and doesn't it, promise change he evokes change and there's that's a valid process in american politics that i think is worth thinking about and it's very kennedy-esque uh, be, yeah. there were a lot of people again going back who assumed that kennedy was a much more liberal person or right. a politician than he actually was yeah and it, it, there is a real nexus there but he had liberal makeup yeah, know what I mean. Yeah. Nixon did yeah. not have liberal makeup. Um, right. uh, right. You know, he looked bronzed <laughs> and, and and flushed with desire. Yeah, well, and, <laughs> he, was, and as it turns out, the he medication was. he was taking that <laughs> made him look bronzed. Well, and but, it turns out he did have a fair amount of desire. Apparently, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that, that's right, right. I mean, and and, and that, but none of that was known. No, of course. But certainly, he. You know, if you read Norman Mailer on John F. Kennedy, you can see how, how he projected this attitude of masculine virility. Um, you know, and, uh, and 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 that I think that did that did form a sensibility in the country. And then after he was uh, assassinated, his brain literally shattered. The whole uh, the whole uh, sort of uh, restraint that was keeping all of that, you know, in a suit and tie, exploded. Yeah. And when the, and, and along with the war, that made it really impossible for for young people to have any kind of allegiance to the to the government or the country. Uh, this created. Um, you know, a, a, a massive insurrection in the country that was probably the greatest civil insurrection since uh, the Civil War. Yeah. And again, it failed. We were crushed. Yeah. Um, yeah. On the other hand, uh, the parts of our agenda that did not involve redistribution of wealth, <laughs> which I thought was very important always, yeah. uh, that part that didn't involve that, that part succeeded because it, it was very productive in generating markets. All of these changes involving race and gender and all of that all generated markets mm-hmm. in a way that distribution of wealth certainly wouldn't have. Mm-hmm. So that that's what succeeded, in, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know. Yes. So but Kennedy was the kind of catalyst of all of that, and it is possible that Obama could be some kind of similar catalyst. We're speaking with Richard Goldstein, He's the co-author of the book The Contenders, and his essay is The Redeemer. Barack Obama, and you're calling him a centrist, and yet he's probably the most visible Democrat uh, articulating withdrawal of troops from Iraq. Uh, do you think he will hold on to that if he is nominated or, or, or pair us up with Hillary? Well, no, I don't. Yeah. And I think his, his, you know, his activity on Iraq is interesting, I mean, because though he came out against the war when he was in the state legislature in Illinois, uh, when he was in the Senate, he was he was more cautious, and he often voted, for instance, against war re- uh, funding resolutions, but without comment. He did this as quietly as he possibly could, and 
I don't think, uh, I, I mean, I think that, that his advisors would probably put him on more or less the same course as Hillary Clinton. There's a difference between a person of color with a Muslim background addressing world leaders than, there, than with a white woman addressing world leaders. Um, I mean, there are certain things that, that a white woman would bring out in an international dynamic, too, but, but uh, certainly being the most powerful person in the world. But, uh, but, but, you know, having somebody with a truly international background be the president would certainly create a new profile for the United States. Yeah. On the other hand, in terms of policies, I don't think they would deviate very much at all. I think he would be less adventuristic than Bush and more cautious. And maybe that's one of the things we need now is caution. More than anything in this country, I think in caution is, is, is uh, you know, a deadly and, and ultimately sinful uh, way to operate America now, and it's very, very counterproductive. So that's where I think Obama would differ from the current uh, occupant of the White House. Do, do you, I'm going to ask a question that sort of pulls together some of these threads, which is uh, that do you think that an election of uh, Barack Obama to the presidency would be as good for our world image as it would be for the United States itself? Well, one, but you see, one helps the other. Right. No, I understand. But you know, do we need, in other words, yeah. given our low standing, the, 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 the war in Iraq has driven us to probably the lowest point, I don't know, I don't know since when, but since certain, World War II. Since World War II, yeah. yeah. That, uh, that we need, uh, as far as to project an image to the rest of the world that is an inclusive, non-threatening kind of uh, country, is right. that is he key to, to projecting an image like that? I think he would help a lot yeah. in that respect. But if it's not accompanied by real policy right, changes, right. I don't know how far it goes. Right. Nonetheless, you know, I think uh, you know, Giuliani would project a very different image. I mean, imagine Sarkozy on a world scale, and you, know, you can really imagine Giuliani's impact on the world. Right. And Obama would project an image that was more conciliatory and more, simply more uh, cognizant of the fact that, that the world is a wide, large place. It's a wheel with many spokes. And uh, you know, I think that the genius, finally, of America in the world has been its ability to manipulate and maneuver among all of these forces, not to, uh, not to control them. Right. Uh, and, and perhaps there would be a return to that uh, you know, tr- really very traditional American way of conducting foreign policy. Yes, we have an imperial past, but uh, uh, you know, not on the scale that it is now. Right. And, and, and you know, there would be uh, a return to the crafty Uncle Sam which, you know, arguably is an improvement uh, over the feckless cowboy. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. I, 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 tr- I truly worry that if we elect, a, like a Giuliani, after re-electing Bush, that the world will t- take a very dim view of us as a country. Well, you and, know, the thing and is, it will play out in yeah, very bad ways. What, you know, what can people do about it? Yeah, and and yeah. what can people in the world do about it? Yeah. And, uh, where you have the possibility of, of the world actually striking back is in China and in Europe, yeah. where uh, you know uh, agglomerations of power mean that they might be in a position in the next four or five years to challenge us more. And I, I think it's to be hoped for. I think it makes will make everybody better off if the United States had limits on its power. It would make us better off. Yeah. It would make us a better country. 
and would make the world better off if there were limitations on American power that we had to operate in in concord with other forces. Right. I, I, I completely agree. Well, Richard Goldstein, we've run out of time. The The book is uh, The Contenders. Uh, your essay in The Contenders is The Redeemer, Barack Obama. Thank you very much for being here on Weekly Signals. Thank you very much. This was wonderful. Right. Thank, you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals.